I received on Instagram someone sending me pictures of lynching and they hope I die and... What do you think is the difference between anti-racist and not racist? Not racist, we, we can throw it in the bin already. That does not <laughs> exist. The answer to the question, how can I be a good ally? Welcome to Stereotype, where we crush stereotypes one episode at a time. I'm your host, DJ Crystal Lake, and if you have not done so already, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on Apple Music. Doing that tells the algorithm to boost this episode for the people to see. It's the best way to support this channel, and it would mean so much to me. Today we'll be talking about standing up against racism and what it means to be a good ally or activist with my special guest, Joris Lachey. We're going to share stories about how we dealt with racism and how oppression negatively affects everyone. Let's get into it. Hello, I'm Joris. <laughs> Joris is an influencer and consultant who is spreading the knowledge about diversity and inclusion. You may have seen him making Ben Shapiro mad. So you know about this. <laughs> yes, I know. Or you may have seen him on your TikTok and your Instagram feed, but now he is here on the Stereotype Podcast. Happy to be here. Have you ever heard, I see no color or all lives matter? And do you think that's harmful or do you think it's helpful? Obviously, that's harmful. Um, <laughs> I am French, and I feel like this is something that I've heard the most from French people. And the version of it that they would tell me is something like, oh, you're not black to me, you're just Joris, you're just yourself, you know, I don't see. And it's like, oh, no. yeah, but I want you to see me as Joris, a black person. There's this assumption that acknowledging someone's identity, if it's not the norm, then then like you you're doing them a disservice to acknowledge that they are not part of the norm. And and that's that's a very privileged take because it's only people in, in positions of privilege and who have not experienced marginalization who think that being part of a minority is something to be ashamed of or something that, you know, we should try to ignore. I don't love to be marginalized, but I love to be part of minorities. I'm, I'm a person of color, I'm gay, I'm, I'm neurodivergent. So all of that are parts of my identities and they inform my experience of society, they inform the way I'm being perceived by society. So that's part of me and I don't want that to be ignored. If you see no color, that means you don't see my struggles and you obviously see my color. When I first heard this, I was like, Girl, I know you see my color and I know you see the stuff that I have to deal with in the office because I vent about it. To be an ally, you can't just say you see, you don't see color because you have to fix it. That, <laughs> that's the worst that they think they're doing you a favor by ignoring your color or whatever, because what they mean is I don't want to stereotype you as the negative things that I associate with blackness. In, in your case. And it's like, well, no, you need to work on those stereotypes, but that's not on me. So I want you to see my blackness and I want you to detach it from all of the negative stuff that you associate with it. So that's a work that you need to do on yourself. I've got nothing to do with it. <laughs> Honestly, that's exactly what it is. And then also the all lives matter thing pissed me off so much because first of all, that thing came out when Black Lives Matter was at its peak. And then all Lives Matter wanted to come out like, all lives matter. And it's like you're protesting against Black Lives Matter. Like, we know everyone matters. 
but you really had to come out here when we were saying like we're struggling, we're hurting, we need some attention, we need some support. So I think I must have argued against it once, maybe twice. But after a while, it's like you can't not know the rebuttal to all lives matter. So if at this stage you're still peddling that rhetoric, it's because you are being intentionally obtuse. You 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 don't want to understand because there's no way you've never heard people explaining that the, the, the fact is that black lives in reality of our society matter less. So it's just a reaffirming of, of the value of black people. They've heard it already. They know it. And, and I think that something that is very important for, for people like us, or like us, for people who have a platform, for people who try to do advocacy or activists. Mm. Yeah. When you have a platform and when you have a voice and when you are in those circles, it's very important to know how to save your energy and there are people who are invested in in exhausting you by making you repeat the same thing and the same thing and very often i'm like we've already covered that the conversation the collective conversation of our society has moved on if you're still stuck there it's not me who's gonna like catch you up i've already explained that i don't believe that you've never heard the explanation or the rebuttal to that argument so i'm not gonna waste my time trying to argue against it if you're really invested and interested in the topic you would already know the answer to this so i'm not answering your question and that's basically the the, the whole approach that i had with for instance ben shapiro when he replied to where, where he re reacted to one of my videos is like i am not actually going to engage with any of your arguments because the rebuttal to those arguments are widely available anyone who's engaging in good faith in this debate already knows the answer. If you present to not know the answer, then there's no amount of reasoning that I can have with you to make you change your mind or to make you see my point. Therefore, I will not waste my energy, waste my time and my resource into trying to convince you that's not gonna work. That's what they want. They want to stall the conversation. And it's like, no, we've moved on. Yeah, they're literally trying to waste our time. Yeah. And I feel like when you're black or a person of color, you just really get good at reading in between the mm. lines. And they make it so easy to read in, in between the lines. It's like, who are you fooling? And they don't believe that we can see it. Yeah, so they're really like, like oh, but yeah. it's like, no, I could see you coming from miles away. Honestly. But they, they, don't, they, think, they think they're doing something. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite funny, uh, frustrating, but funny at the same time. Yeah, it's like, clearly you think we're dumb. But like, honestly, you're the dumb one. Because we are not falling for this. We're just not. <laughs> gonna waste any time with you anymore so bye <laughs> yes yes exactly what do you think is the difference between anti-racist and not racist right so not racist we, we can throw it in the bin already that does not <laughs> exist that's a myth like here's the thing we live in a racist society we are part of society so the question is never whether you as a person are racist or not nobody cares it's <laughs> Knowing that you live in a racist society, how does the racism that already exists in society affect you? How does that influence your perception of things? That's the real question that we all need to ask ourselves, even us black people, because internalized racism is a thing. We too are influenced by the messages and the implicit biases of our society. So the question is, how are we affected by it? How does that affect our perception, our biases, our preferences. I feel like a lot of people think that it's good enough to be not racist. 
And it's like, no, if you're not trying to fight for us, then what are you doing? We know that there is racism in society. So, like, are you okay with doing nothing about it? Because not being non-racist, that would be basically that. It's like, oh, I have nothing to do with that racism thing that exists in society. I'm just going to exist. Mm. Removing myself from it. Well, first of all, that's impossible. But also that means that you're happy for it to exist and continue existing and perpetrating itself without you doing anything. Okay, cool, thanks. Yeah. And you think we were supposed to thank you for that, for not being racist? It's yeah, like, exactly. No. It's like, you're doing nothing for us. It's like that meme with that, with Gemma Collins. It's like, I don't want to get involved. I'm not getting involved. I'm here to enjoy myself, JC style. Do you know what I mean? You're not trying to get involved in fixing the society. You're not trying to get involved with fixing us. So it's just like, it's clear that you're only looking out for yourself and you don't care about the black people around you, but you want to still be friends with the black person. or <laughs> yeah, You want to benefit from it, yeah. from blackness, from your proximity to blackness, from what black people may have to bring to your life. But then, oh, no, no, I'm not involved in that racism thing. I'm not, not racist. And that's, no, that's not enough. Yeah. It just kind of brings me back to university because in high school I had so many black friends and when i went to uni it was like super white mm. and i remember some people would just say some things that, that it was like peak time racist jokes and i'd be like just don't even say that and then i would look at the person that i thought was my friend at the time and be like mm. why would person. you say yeah and i would be like why did why did you say that and it would be like oh i'm not racist but um yeah, I just thought this was funny. And it, it, it was so hurtful because I'm just, I'm, I'm like, you're supposed to be my friend. And it, it, this just reminds me of the people that say they're not racist because honestly, it felt to me like this person didn't care, but they were so quick to say I'm not racist, so it's okay. But not doing anything isn't helping me. If anything, it's harming me. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, so there's the Godwin point. I don't know if, you, if you've heard of that, but like the minute in a conversation, in a debate, someone brings up a compar comparison to, to Hitler or, or, or to the, the Nazis, then that's a Godwin point. And you've reached a point where the, the debate cannot be constructive anymore because like you've already gone to the extreme. So that's the Godwin mm. point. And I feel like whenever someone in any debate or conversations gets to the point of saying, I'm not racist, there's no conversation after that because, you know, they've removed themselves from the problem. They've made you let, let you know that they don't, they, they're not invested in, in like that racist thing that mm -hmm. you claim to be experiencing. So it's, it's, it's the end of the conversation. So for me, I'm not racist. So that means, yeah, that means you're not willing to have a conversation with me. You're not willing to change anything. You're not willing to challenge yourself the systems of oppression, the reality of our society, it's, 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 it's the end of the conversation, it's the end of the debate. What we need are the anti-racists because the difference is an anti-racist is the person that is gonna fight for you, the person that calls out the racist joke when somebody says something and realizes it's affecting their friend, or the person that's gonna come out and protest with you when you're fighting for your life. Right. But I would like to take it a little bit further when we talk about allyship, because allyship is not enough. Trying to appeal to the sense of justice or solidarity, I think, is not enough. Because the thing is, 
racism is not only bad because it affects black people of, of, or people of color, but racism is a tool of oppression that was invented to maintain, to create an underclass and to maintain that class in a state of permanent exploitation and oppression, right? So racism is only one of the tools. There are other tools that our society uses whenever it's more convenient. They're very quick to drop racism, but to move to something else. And very often it's like, oh yeah, but okay, so we fixed racism. So, but like the fight continues. And I think that when we talk about allyship and when we talk to white people, my goal is to show them how racism is only one aspect of oppression, but that they experience oppression too. Mm. Probably not because of their racial identity, if they're white, but for other reasons, if, if they are working class, they experience oppression. If they are foreigners in the country that they work in, they experience oppression. We live in a society where the huge majority of us are being exploited, are mm -hmm. being oppressed. So I try, this is how I try to connect with white people, not by telling them, be nice, be charitable, and try to help us in that racist fight, but by telling them, the racism that is oppressing me is only one of the tools in the toolbox of oppression and you are probably experiencing another version of it that might not be racism, but it's in your interest to dismantle racism because when we dismantle racism, we also attack the oppression and the oppressor and we are in this together. So I really try to like see commonality and highlight the commonality and not just appeal to justice or charity because mm -hmm. I don't want no white people's charity. I don't care. But I want them to realize that the system that is fucking me over is also fucking them over. Probably not at the same level, not in the same intensity, but they're coming for them too yeah. because the idea is to extract and to exploit and they are being exploited too. Have you ever dealt with microaggressions from people that called themselves allies? They're the worst people. <laughs> yeah. People who think they're righteous, who think that they have the moral high ground, we all make mistakes. But there's a specific type of people who think that, who build their entire identity on the, the idea that they're good and they're good people. And therefore, because they are good people, they can do no wrong. And because racism is such a bad thing, then they cannot be racist. And if we were to call them out or call them in on something that they might have unintentionally done, they're the last people who would recognize it because that would mean challenging their entire construct of themselves and, and their position in society. So we would have to deal with their defensiveness and being hurt and then that would trigger a whole host of, of things. So yeah, I think, and this is why I'm, I'm very careful with, with people who call themselves allies because it's like, what is your personality mm. though? What are you in it for? What is your goal? Because I don't care that you see yourself as an ally. I want you to tell me how you think you are going to benefit from us fighting this fight together. Yeah. Because again, very often when we look at allyship and people who call themselves allies, they're doing it out of charity. They're doing it, doing it out of, you know, just because they want to be nice. But like, if you really think about it, it's a form of saviorism. And it, it's, it's a way of putting themselves, placing themselves in the center so that they can be the hero of the story. They can be 
the ones doing the good deeds, helping, helping out. I don't want help. I want people who are fighting because it's in their interest as well. And I want them to recognize it. This is why it's so important to create commonality in, in the interest. And there's the notion of class interests, race interests, but we are all in it together. And that's what I'm looking for. I want to know that you know why you're fighting. You're not fighting for me. I don't want you to fight for me. I want you to fight for us because you know it's going to benefit you too to be in a better society. Yeah. There is someone listening to this right now that's thinking, how can I be a good ally? You're also fighting for yourself. Yes, yes. The answer to the question, how can I be a good ally? Identify the ways in which you are being beep over by the system. Mm -hmm. Once you've identified that, look around and see who else is also being beeped over by the system and who might be even more beeped over by the system than yeah. you and work with them. Ask them what they've been doing. Find out what fights they are fighting because you are in it together. So being a good ally is recognizing that you are in it together, in it together with the other people who are also experiencing the oppression that we all experience from the system. If you want to show the world that you're sick of labels, then head to the stereotype shop at cutbycrystal.com shop or head to my Instagram at DJ Crystal Lake. I actually loved creating these and I think they look pretty cool. So let me know if you like how they turned out as well. I have a fun game coming up. Are you ready? I'm never ready. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a game of would you rather. Now I'm sweating. <laughs> would you rather have all the problematic statues replaced with real leaders or have the queen make a speech about diversity and inclusion? So the thing is, statues, they would be there virtually forever, forever right? So every time someone walks past, they would have that 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 thought or that conversation and then like, schools could come and, and see them whereas a speech from the queen well first of all we probably need to hurry up because, uh, <laughs> it, yeah it's going to be a huge debate but then then people will move on and then she's not going to be the queen forever i think on a very practical level i think that the statues would be would, would be better you thought yeah. that through <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, because the statues are going to be there. And if I see someone that looks like me as a statue, I'd be like, whoa, because I've never seen that. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., we literally have slave owners, people who pushed racism as our statues. You know that there was the civil rights war and people who wanted slavery and those who did it. The ones that really wanted slavery and was like, black people aren't bleep. They, their statues are everywhere. It is so problematic. And the worst part about that in that history is being rewritten as we speak in the US. Like, you know, the Confederate flag. It has been reclaimed by the right racists. Oh, and yeah. now they like, they made it a whole identity, the, the South of the US and all of that, the Confederate identity. And it's like, it was not even a thing a hundred years ago. Like people were moving on from that. And then uh -huh. that was completely manufactured a manufactured identity to be racist yeah built on racism something that we were almost moving on from and like people weren't like no actually let's let's make a whole identity out of that history is being rewritten right now in the u.s the new confederate flag i feel like are the maga hats 
Yes. I'm like, okay, whenever I see the Make America Great Again hats, I'm like, I already know what your views are. So, and I know you don't, I know you don't F with me. So, and I do not want to be in the table with you. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever we talk about America now, well, the the USA and, and I'm almost already tuning out. I've almost lost, lost faith. When I was a child and we went to school, the way that things were presented to us, I don't know about you in the US, but for me, both in Guadeloupe and then in mainland France, there was a sense that history has a direction and it's, there's progress. We are progressing. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, women did not have certain rights and now they do. Back in the day, society was very like strict and 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 now it's not as much and there was this impression that we are going towards more rights more freedom more equality that was the idea that was the and and it's like now i'm realizing i took it for granted i'm realizing now that we're reverting now yeah, we're literally reverting. We're and all the US. realizing that. It's yeah. not just you, because I think everyone was shocked when we see things like that whole abortion thing that happened, and even what sparked like black the Black Lives Matter movement, with how many people got shot and killed, and just realizing like the reality. It's so wild. Yeah. Honestly, but before we get caught up on that, I'm gonna ask you question number two. Ah, okay. <laughs> Would you rather bring back Martin Luther King Jr. from the dead or make it mandatory to teach black history in schools? Are we at a place in society where we are able to teach it as a thing, Martin Luther King? you would bring back Martin Luther King from the dead? No. (laughs) So which one is it? (laughs) So I have some caveats for teaching black history we need to be aware that this black history exists everywhere Mm. not just in the u.s um but martin luther king is part of the past and you know society has evolved i almost would rather have fred hampton coming back because so martin luther king already reached a point where he managed to make a change right Fred Hampton, they got him before he could make a change precisely because the change he was going to make, it was going to be cataclysmic, I think. Yeah, Uh, and this was the leader of the Black Panther. The leader of the Black Panther, yes. And I think he was only 29 when he was killed. And, And yeah, he was very young. He was a prodigy. And also there's this whole aspect of the Black Panther that that has been erased is that the Black Panther were anti-capitalist. And that's the reason why I'm mentioning him is that I think this is one of the biggest tools of black oppression nowadays is that we have separated black liberation from the fight against capitalism. If you look at the Black Panther Manifesto, they clearly state we need to dismantle capitalism because it's capitalism that that creates the oppression that affects black people. And that part of history has been completely removed. And mm-hmm. I think that this is the best job of the CIA, the FBI and the US authorities is that they've managed to separate black liberation and civil rights and anti-racism from the uh, the fight against against the system that oppresses us, which is capitalism. And, and it literally made me sad to see that manifesto and to realize how much 
of a central point it was and how much we've completely forgotten about it. I think that there was an entire aspect that has been erased from history intentionally. White supremacy, they won this fight. And I feel like we need to bring it back. We need yeah. to go back to this. Ooh. <laughs> Would you rather live a life with no social media trolls or have mandatory safe spaces in schools and work? I don't mind the trolls. Because they're trolls. I like It's sad for them. Like, Can you imagine where you have to be in life? I was actually having a drink with another TikToker, Kane, Kane Kawasaki. I don't know oh, if you're, yeah. you're aware of him. Yeah, yes. oh my goodness, I love Kane's stuff. We were in Peckham. He's obviously from Peckham and he was showing me around and I was learning so much. And after we'd walked together and we've made content together, it, as we were doing that, having a great time, I received um, uh, on Instagram someone like, you know, like sending me pictures of, of, of lynching and someone saying that, you know, I'm anti-white and I should, I, they, they hope I, I, I die and stuff like extremely oh violent. My. And I just looked at it and I'm like, it almost made me laugh and chuckle because I'm like, I'm having a great time right now just existing. And there's someone in his room, probably his mother's basement <laughs> right now, full of hate, who has nothing but better to do with his life but to send me this. I was not sad for him, but I just thought, wow, can you imagine being in that place? Yeah. So I don't mind the troll, but, but I need to acknowledge that this is a privileged position because I've never had my physical integrity threatened. What I do mind is when I feel that the platform or the system that I'm part of is actually siding with them or not necessarily intentionally siding with them, but they're making it easier for them to attack me than for me to respond or to defend myself. And that's something that I've experienced with, with like, you know, either shadow banning or, or auto automatic oh. um, moderation. Yeah. And that really gets me mad. Yeah. I lose my mind over this. I had so many strikes on my account. Yes. Because like I would write back and it wouldn't even be anything half as crazy as they were writing me too. Exactly. And automatically like I'm, I'm, I, I get sent a message like this was taken down because you avoided community guidelines or like, for example, my Instagram reach completely yeah. dropped because I got banned for like a comment that had no like hateful words. And the person that wrote the hateful comment, nothing happened to them. But yeah. for me, it was like, now your account is flagged. <laughs> it's part of the oppression, I think. And I think that the, the the platforms do that just so that from a legal point of view, they can be like, oh, we're doing our best to fight against um, hate speech and bullying. Look, we have we have all of those words that are being flagged. Mm. But who is going to use the words that refer to Nazis, for instance? Is it going to be the Nazis or the people being targeted by the Nazis? Mm. The Nazis are they're too clever they they not, they don't need to use those terms yeah it's the people experiencing it and trying to talk about their experience who are going to use it and they know that and this is what drives me crazy they know that their policies are primarily affecting the victims but they don't care because they're only doing it to defend themselves to be able to go to the, the, the justice systems or the Congress in the US or whatever and say, well, we're doing our best. No, they're not. They don't care. So I'm guessing you're going with mandatory safe spaces. 
Yes. And I've not even began to even think about that, but <laughs> yes. So I think when we talk about safe space, there's something that we need to make clear and that people, well, especially people who are against it, they, they don't realize is that people will say, well, that's not fair. That's gatekeeping. And like, you know, if, if that community can have a space, then why is it wrong? For me to want to have my space as a white person, for instance. Yeah, so or, you know, that like, sounds like those people who are um, like, why isn't there a white history moment? Exactly. <laughs> and what about straight pride? Yeah. And, <laughs> but we need to make something clear is that when you are part of the norm or like the, the, the dominant social group, the world is already your safe space. Mm -hmm. So when minorities or marginalized people are asking for a safe space, it's not to exclude you. It's because your space that you don't realize is already built for you, already serves you. And it does not serve the people who are asking for safe spaces. So Joris, how do you feel about labels? I like them. I like yeah. labels. Yes, but um, but before I get people mad, uh, I am also very um, pro everyone having the agency of, of either using labels if they feel like it fits them, but also not using labels if they find it oppressive because there are people who do exp whose experience of labels is that of oppression. And I'm a, I am absolutely for them having the ability to get rid of labels if that doesn't fit them. Um, but in my personal experience, my, well, yeah, in my life, labels have been something rather liberating. Um, for instance, as a neurodivergent person, me finally having a label to know that I, I have ADHD, I am on the autistic spectrum, um, those things have really liberated me because they've validated my experience. They've let me know that I didn't make it up. It's not just all in my head. There is an actual term for what is happening to me, for what I'm feeling, for, for the way I'm experiencing the world. And I'm not the only one. And there are some serious people who have thought about it and who have determined that this was a thing. So for me, labels have been very validating to me. I am a man, I identify as a man. My experience of the world is as a man and that label fits me. Therefore, I like it, but I also completely understand that those labels, so for instance, gender or, or neurotypes and stuff like that, they might not fit everyone. I acknowledge that labels have been good for me, but I also want everyone to be able to not use them if they don't want them. Yeah, to be in control. It, you saying that made me think of how I think of labels because I definitely have this thing where I'm like, you're more than just a label. But when I'm thinking about labels, a lot of times I'm just associating it with stereotypes and what yeah. people label me as instead of being in control of my own label. I know I found a lot of queer communities on Tumblr and I was like, I'm not the only person feeling these things. I'm not the only person thinking these thoughts. Exactly. And it did help me find community. But the problem I have with labels is when other people stereotype me for the labels. So my my sense on labels is when it's associated with stereotypes or what people think of me before they even know me. Yeah. And I'm like, don't label me. You don't even know me. It's their problem. It's not 
powers. Yeah, you're literally controlling your own identity instead of having society label you. Yeah. What actually made you create your platform? From a very young age, I've always been someone who would speak up for my ideas, for my thoughts, and I've pretty much always sought to be recognized for what I had to say. Funnily enough, I took a completely different route because then I started modeling, still technically am, but um, I really got to a point where I was almost sick of getting recognition and validation from my appearance. It is a privilege and I'm completely aware of that. But at the same time, I really felt that, you know, I had more to give to the world. And then the world completely collapsed in 2020. (laughs) But for me, that was the opportunity to um, really be able to develop and bring forward um, another aspect of, of what I wanted to be. Suddenly, everybody was interested in racism, finally. Yeah. So I felt like, okay, now I have something to contribute. And and funnily enough, it started on Instagram and I felt like suddenly people were interested in what I might have to say. And I was like, really? But you didn't care a few months ago. Why suddenly you looking at me and like, okay, well, if, if you're listening now, I'm going to make use of that attention that I'm getting from you. So I started making YouTube videos. Then I thought, oh, let me just post some some clips. So that was the idea. And this is how I ended up on TikTok, which initially was just to put some snippets of my YouTube videos and be like, hey, come check me out. I don't know you. I don't know the community here. <laughs> so that's how I landed on TikTok. But very quickly, I got much more attention, much more views on TikTok. And it's it was one minute videos. It was so much quicker and easier. Are there any projects that you're working on now? Where I want to take my content on TikTok is to do, so I've done a lot about London and, and sociology of the built environment in London. And now I want to do that in other cities, other cities of the UK and abroad as well. Oh yeah, because so, you travel a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I want to kill two birds with one stone and get to explore other cities, but not from a tourist point of view that you would see on any travel blog or travel channel on, on TV, but from the perspective of, of marginalized identities, marginalized communities and stuff that you would not necessarily know about if if you're not from there. What I would really want to do is let them take me through their experience of the city. And it can be a city that is like everyone thinks they know, but actually let me show you something from an angle that you might not have thought about. What advice would you give to someone that's stressed out because they deal with racists in their everyday life? And this could be something like work or school. Well, the first thing is if if, if they're dealing with, with overt racism, um, get the help that you can and make sure to not let people around you or society gaslight you into thinking you're you're doing too much you're misinterpreting you're being paranoid you know it's not actually racism no tune into your feelings if you do not like the way people make you feel then then there's a good reason for that and and you should have the ability to vocalize it Uh, So find the people who are willing to believe you and support you. But more importantly, I feel like I need to acknowledge that right now I'm in a rather privileged position. I am not physically threatened by by, by racism. It doesn't pose a threat to me or to my... uh, I'm also... I have light skin privilege. 
I have many other privileges that my perceived proximity to whiteness allow afford me a certain degree of of comfort in my life. So I feel like because I also have a platform and and all the privileges that come with that, I'm more interested in listening to people's stories and and listening to their struggles and try to amplify their voices rather than give advice. Mm. Th- this is something that I, I want to do more of. I can be more useful to people experiencing racism, experiencing oppression by amplifying their voice, listening to them, sharing my platform with them. I think this is more productive than than me giving advice from that the very comfortable position that I'm in now. You're showing that you're there for the person, but also even just being a good listener could teach you so much about yourself as well. No, it's true. Yeah. And well, yeah, that's also a, a neurodivergent way of connecting with people, uh, which is to relating their experience to your experience. And it can be perceived as, oh, you're making it about yourself, you're centering yourself. But no, you're letting them know that you can understand what they're going through and you understand their experience because you have gone through something that might not be the same experience, but that may, might be something equivalent. Let's go. Thank you so much, Jordan. In this episode, we talked about how oppression can come in many forms, meaning the fight against racism is just one part of oppression. We also learned the importance of really thinking about why do you want to fight against racism and what that means for you and your life. Because once again, we all benefit from an anti-racist society, and we benefit when we come together and fight oppression. If you enjoyed this show, please give it a rating and review. It tells the algorithm to boost this podcast. And trust me, there are so many people that need to hear these discussions. So it would mean a lot if you do this to support the community and this podcast. Don't miss out on the next episode where I'm covering the history of the Black people can't swim stereotype and talking about the horrifying real reason that caused many Black people to avoid swimming. Until then, this was DJ Crystal Lake, and remember, you are a person, not a label. I'll see you in the next one.